Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Good to be back in the Word of God with you once again. Make your way to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we start with verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? One Sunday morning after church, two brothers were out playing in the backyard, and these two brothers stopped when they saw some bushes rocking back and forth. Out stepped their dog with a white rabbit. Now the problem was, both brothers knew the rabbit belonged to their neighbor, a widow by the name of Mrs. Clausen. Well, the two brothers felt the best thing to do was to come clean, so they told their dad. Well, dads can fix things. That's what they do. So good old dad, he looked at the rabbit, told the kids not to worry about it, and then he gave them the instruction to hose down the rabbit, make him nice and clean, brush him down with a towel, and stick him back in the cage. When she comes home and discovers her rabbit, she'll be a little upset, but she'll just figure it died of natural causes. And then he gave them one last bit of instruction, make sure you tie up the dog. Well, the two brothers did exactly as they were told, and they headed off to wait in the bushes to get a good view of what would happen when Mrs. Clausen did come home. Well, sure enough, she came home, headed out the back door, and headed right for the rabbit cages. And all of a sudden, they heard the worst screaming you could ever imagine. Mrs. Clausen was crying and screaming and asking God all kinds of questions. Because of all the screaming and crying, the father, the two boys, came running into the backyard. And after they got her to calm down, they asked her what was wrong. And in between the sniffs and the sobs, she finally got out the words, I buried that rabbit three days ago. Deception is an age-old problem. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when the serpent said to Eve, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? This, by the way, is just another reason we should be looking forward to the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jeremiah 31, 34 proclaims about this time. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. When Satan is bound, and when the Lord Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning on his throne, the people of God will no longer have to battle deception and the lies of this world. Look forward to that day. But until then, stand fast, because the lies of Satan are all around us, and the lies of Satan have found a home within the church of Jesus Christ. Paul started to address the situation at Thessalonica by telling them in verses 1 and 2, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, 
as though the day of Christ had come. With verse 1, we have a big shift in the text. This is a new subject, and the topic that Paul is now addressing is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Now, how do we know this is a reference to the rapture? How do we know that this is not just about the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation? First of all, as we're going to see in just a moment, the text itself is pretty clear. But secondly, there's a significant difference in wording between the two in Scripture. Now, keep in mind what you just saw in 2 Thessalonians 2.1. The wording is referring to the second coming, or literally, the presence of Christ. And what? Our gathering together to him. The picture given is of the assembly of believers coming together. This is the rapture of the church before the tribulation begins. But head over to Matthew 25. And as we look at this text, I want you to focus on the contrast with what we just saw in 2 Thessalonians. Matthew 25, verse 31. Notice this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. This is the second coming. The context afterwards goes on to describe the judgment of the nations, especially verse 41. Take a look at what Christ will say to the unbelievers still alive at the end of the tribulation. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And again, skip down to verse 46. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Head over to our text from our last study in 2 Thessalonians 1, and we'll pick it up with verse 7. And to give you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember that the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation speaks of Christ judging the nations and that the rapture of the church focuses on us being gathered together to Christ, it helps it to be clear. It helps us to identify in any given passage what the text is referring to. Head back over to 1 Thessalonians 4. One more example for you. Take a look at 1 Thessalonians 4, starting with verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Again, notice the focus is not on judgment. It is on being taken up and gathered together to meet the Lord. Once you understand the difference in wording, you can spot it a mile away. Head back to 2 Thessalonians. And notice with me, there is no mention of the judgment of the nations, but there is the clear reference of us being gathered together to be with Christ. The way that the wording is laid out in this verse makes it clear that Paul is referring to one event. That event is the rapture of the church. The Greek has one article with both nouns, indicating that the coming and our gathering to him are two descriptions of the same event. Paul is simply building off of his teaching from chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians about the rapture of the church. The coming of Christ means our gathering together in the air to meet Christ. 
the blessed hope of being caught up to meet the Lord when he returns, should have steadied the soul of any believer in Christ at Thessalonica who had thought that the day of judgment had come. Paul told the church, We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled. I like the wording better on the King James here. It's a little stronger than to ask. The King James states, We beseech you. In other words, we implore you. Paul was trying to settle the church down, and the wording that Paul used carries the idea that in this group of believers, men and women were responding to this new teaching that had come into the church without taking into consideration all that they had already been taught about the return of the Lord. Here is what was going on. The Christians at Thessalonica were being persecuted for their faith in Christ, and they got the big idea into their heads that the suffering they were facing was a part of the suffering that will come during the day of the Lord. The word used for shaken in the text was a word that was sometimes used to describe a ship that had not been properly anchored and was being blown out to sea in a storm. Paul was proclaiming that these men and women were being shaken like a ship, being hit with waves by this new teaching. But notice Paul said, shaken in mind. The mind is where we make our decisions. The mind is where the battle is, which is why we are taught in Romans to renew our minds with the word of God. Now, what does it mean to be shaken in mind? It means to be thrown off balance. It means to not allow our minds to fulfill the God-given role of making decisions based on God's truth. It is to be swayed by our emotions rather than the unshifting standard of God's word. Paul was calling for these believers to not let their decisions be governed by emotions and feelings, but by reasoning things through the word of God. The word troubled carries with it the idea of being frightened, to be alarmed. And this new teaching that had crept in had the people running on emotions and had them worried. Notice again the rest of verse 2. Either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Now key in on the phrase, as if from us. Grammatically, this is tied to by spirit, by word, or by letter. So here's what this means. The idea of teaching coming to them by spirit would have been prophetic utterance, meaning someone was saying that Paul had received direct revelation from God that the day of the Lord had begun. Others were running around saying that Paul himself was now teaching that the day of the Lord was present. And third, someone forged a letter from Paul, once again stating that the day of the Lord had come. Over in chapter 3, Paul closes the letter by saying, The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. Paul had to remind them that he signs his letters because someone wrote a letter to the church pretending to be him. These poor brothers and sisters in Christ were scared out of their minds because they had thought that the day of the Lord had arrived. They had thought that somehow, some way, they had missed the rapture and that they were now about to endure the day of the Lord and the wrath of God. Paul was letting the church know in verse 2 they had not missed the rapture and they did not need to fear. They could calm down. Their future in Christ was secure and the reports about Paul and his teaching, well, they were not true. Take another look at our text starting in verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. 
Now work our way through this text with me. Take the first phrase, let no one deceive you by any means. This is a powerful warning by the Apostle Paul, urging them to put themselves on guard against deception. It does not matter who the person is, let no one deceive you, whether it came by a prophetic utterance, by a word, or by letter. In our day, Paul would say whether it comes from the pulpit of men, whether it comes from the bookstores or the Christian radio stations, watch out, be on guard. Just because a person has all the degrees, the titles, or the praise of men, do not let them deceive you by any means. And Paul lists out that before the day of the Lord will come, the falling away comes first. Here's where you need to pay attention. Falling away can be translated apostasy, rebellion, or departure. Now, I think you should be aware that because the word can simply mean departure, that many good men take the position that this must refer to the rapture. My co-author takes this position in our book, but I think the context and the grammar leans against it. I think the correct understanding is that the falling away literally means the apostasy, the rebellion, the defection from the truth. This is someone who at one point in time professed to hold to a certain truth, but they deliberately chose to abandon the truth. This is a conscious choice. The term was used to refer to a political or military rebellion, but here Paul uses it in reference to the professing church of Christ. Now, if you read the epistles of the New Testament, it becomes clear that rebellion against the faith and against the Lord has always been a plague in the church. All throughout church history, this has been a problem. But Paul uses the definite article. Paul says, the falling away, meaning we're not talking of just another time in history when the Christian faith is in a bit of a downturn. This is the great revolt that will take place in the latter days. Head over to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I want us to take the time to look at these other passages which teach us of this great falling away that will take place in the latter days. 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The closer we get to the return of Christ, the worse the deception will get. More and more people will depart from the faith to follow the doctrines of demons. Don't get the idea that these people will abandon religion altogether because that is not what this is teaching. They will have religion. These will be some of the most religious people you will ever meet. But their religion will be man-centered, and it will come straight from the pits of hell. And the worst part is that not only will they be deceived, but they will try to lead others down the same path. The time has already come where you can be ridiculed and mocked for your faith, and it's only going to get worse. Notice what Paul teaches, speaking lies in hypocrisy. They will seek to lead others astray with their lies. Now, individuals like this have seared their own conscience. Paul wrote this to young Timothy when Timothy was at Ephesus, and even at the early stages of the church, they had a problem with false teachers forbidding to marry and forbidding men to eat certain foods. But whenever I read this passage, my mind goes once again to the Roman Catholic Church because it was in 1074 AD that they came up with the idea that their priests cannot get married. And how many disgusting acts of perversion have come from this 
over the years simply because these men are forced to burn with passion and lust. This type of teaching will only continue to grow until Christ returns. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. In this second letter to Timothy, Paul's own death was drawing near. And in chapter 3 of this second letter, Paul expounds upon this teaching of what will come in the latter days. 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people, turn away. I could not think of a better description for what is taking place in our day. Now remember, the term last days is a term that refers to this entire period, all the way back to the first century, up until the time of Christ's return. So in other words, this is the type of activity that will be represented all throughout this period of time. But at the same time, remember that Paul is also teaching us in 2 Thessalonians that the closer we get to the return of Christ, the worse things are going to get. These are men and women who have a form of godliness, but are denying its power. These are men and women who profess to know God. A form of godliness means that outward profession of godliness, but the power of God, the Holy Spirit, is not there, meaning that outwardly they can look good, but inwardly the Holy Spirit is not present because they do not have faith in Christ. Notice the last phrase that Paul writes to Timothy in the last part of verse 5 and from such people, turn away. Now, the meaning here is that these are not the type of people that you want to be in constant fellowship with. These are not the type of people that belong within the fellowship of the Lord's assembly. These are not the type of people that we should be unequally yoked with. I honestly wish more Christians understood that this command from the Apostle Paul means that we need to be careful not to be working with ecumenical groups who promote false unity under the name of Christ. All the while, they deny the power of the gospel of Christ. Paul told Timothy, turn away from these people. Don't try to work with them. Don't confuse the situation for everyone involved, pretending that they're Christians even though they have a different gospel. Try to witness to them because they are headed on a path to hell. Didn't Paul tell the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. The church of Jesus Christ has no business being unequally yoked with the false religions of the world. It is disobedience to the word of God. It is disobedience to God himself. We must come out and be separate from them. Skip ahead to chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, starting in verse 2 of chapter 4, where Paul told Timothy, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince. Rebuke. Exhort with all long suffering and teaching. 
For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. What we have today is that whatever it is that you choose to believe, if you look hard enough, you can find someone out there teaching that message. Whatever you want to hear, someone will be glad to take your money and teach you exactly what you want to hear. Shop around until you find a church with comfortable seats, find a church with great social events, and with sermons that do not offend. How do we deal with this? How is the Church of Christ to respond to this apostasy? Well, the answer is found in verses 2 and 5. Always preach the Word of God and be clear about this. This means every single one of us has the responsibility of sharing our faith in the Word of God with others. And the second part of the answer is found down in verse 5 where Paul instructs Timothy, But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Focus on the work of Christ. That's the answer. It always comes back to what is your focus. Be aware of false doctrines. Watch out for them, but don't make them your focus. Make your focus on sharing Christ. Make your focus on teaching others the Word of God. Teach others about the grace of God, the love of God, and the free gift of redemption. Don't get discouraged by the rebellion of the lost, but instead rejoice. Because the Word of God predicted this would happen, and it should build our confidence in His Word. Head back now to our text in 2 Thessalonians. Paul had told the church at Thessalonica that the day of the Lord would not come until the falling away comes first. This departing from the faith will take place before the day of the Lord. But then notice what else will happen, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. We're going to see in our next study in verses 6, 7, and 8 that Paul makes it clear that the man of sin is not revealed until after the rapture of the church. And when the man of sin is revealed, it will proclaim that the day of the Lord has arrived. Paul was letting them know that since the man of sin, the Antichrist, had not been revealed, the day of the Lord had not begun. The suffering that they were experiencing was just normal persecution and was not the judgments that come in the day of the Lord. The wording used gives us the understanding that this man will be alive and present on this earth for some time before he is revealed for who he is. Now, the church will be gone at this point, and according to Daniel 9, part of this revealing of who this man is will be when he makes a covenant with Israel and rises to power. The man of sin is a description of the wickedness of this man. Sin will completely dominate him. He is just a man, but a man who operates under the power of Satan. The phrase son of perdition literally means the son of destruction or son of ruin. Now, the point of this expression is that his future is certain. The man is doomed. Remember, whenever you see the Word of God use this phrase, the son of, the point is, the person has a relationship like the relationship a son has to his father. This man has a relationship with his future loss, with his ruin. So even though the man of sin will seem powerful during the tribulation, his future is certain. He will one day be cast into the lake of fire by the Lord Jesus Christ. Those in Christ have nothing to fear. In verse 4, Paul records, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Anyone who opposes God is the enemy of Christ. 
This will certainly be true of the coming Antichrist. But the idea here is that the coming Antichrist will exalt himself to be worshipped as God. He will not only exalt himself above the true God of the Christian faith, but he's going to exalt himself above every false God of this world, above anything that is worshipped by men. The Antichrist will tolerate the worship of no one but himself. Notice the second part of verse 4. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The pride and arrogance of the Antichrist will reach its natural conclusion. Instead of exalting God, he will exalt himself. And the result of all this will be that he will sit in the rebuilt temple of the Jews, proclaiming to be God. Now this takes us back to Daniel 9, where we learn that the Antichrist will make a covenant with the Jews for seven years. But three and a half years into the covenant, the Antichrist will bring an end to sacrifices and offerings so that he can exalt himself as God by sitting in the inner sanctuary of the temple. The wording used by Paul for temple points us to the understanding that Paul had in mind the holy place of the rebuilt Jewish temple. Because this man will sit in God's place in the inner sanctuary, this man will parade himself around as God. Notice again Paul tells the church in verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? In just the few weeks that Paul was with them, there does not seem to be a topic that Paul did not cover. The believers at Thessalonica had been taught about the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, the Antichrist, and the growing need to watch out for deception. Just a few years back, a pastor that I know of went to a faith healer's service. Now, this man is a very conservative pastor who loves the Word of God and who believes the Word of God. He had just finished up preaching a series of messages of all that is wrong with the charismatic Word of Faith movement. The faith healer that came to town was a part of this movement. A friend had invited this pastor, and he decided to go. Since the man professed to be able to heal and do many wonders in the name of Christ, this pastor went to get a better understanding of what goes on at these services so that he could warn others of their deception. The very first thing that the faith healer did was call the audience to a commitment not to judge or say anything negative about what would take place at this service. This is actually a very common practice by the ecumenical teachers or pastors today and by these fake healers that come to town. Those who focus on not judging the teaching of men are almost always those who do not want their own teaching or their lives exposed by the Word of God. There's a vast difference between judging and being discerning. This pastor said that he walked in with confidence in the Word of God and confidence that what he was about to see was not of God. But he said that even he was soon taken back by what he saw. The faith healer performed many healings, which left the pastor surprised to the point that he even began to question what he himself had been teaching for so long. A woman who was supposedly blind regained her sight. Those who were deaf were claiming to be able to hear Crutches were being tossed aside, and the friend of this pastor that had invited him was called up to be healed of an aneurysm. Now, this pastor knew that his friend loved the Lord. He knew that his friend had been asking for prayer for his aneurysm for several weeks. So when the healer called him by name and was able to know about his aneurysm, it caught this pastor completely off guard. It made him have some doubts. It made him think, could someone do these things if he was not of God? Could so many people be willing to lie before God to fake these healings? 
The faith healer was in town for several weeks, so this pastor kept going just so he could get a better understanding of what was going on. And on his third visit, he began to notice some things. One lady was called up and was identified as someone who had been divorced three times. This healer told her that God brought men into her life for a purpose, and once they fulfilled their purpose, he took them away so that she would divorce them. But doesn't Malachi chapter 2 teach us that God hates divorce? Doesn't quite match the word of God, does it? To claim that God wanted her to get divorced, even though the word of God clearly states the Lord hates divorce, is obviously a false teaching. With time, this pastor reports that the doctrine coming from this man continued to go downhill. And the healings were inconsistent. One woman was healed on three different nights. One man was healed twice. And these were just from the services that this pastor was able to attend. All of the dramatic healings were people that were from out of town and no one even knew who they were. Then this pastor began to compare notes with other churches in the area. And every local person that was healed was someone who had a prayer request for sickness or ill health that was listed in one of the local church bulletins. Information that any visitor to any of these churches could have gotten. This pastor kept watching this healer. He noticed that the ushers who came to town with this man pointed to the people in the crowd like they had gotten the information on these people. All of these healings were internal. There was nothing that you could see externally. People who were paralyzed were never called up. Those with missing limbs or physical deformities were seldom called up. And when they were, nothing happened other than they were told that if they had enough faith, they would eventually be healed. And when they could not be healed, it was always said to be because of a lack of faith. There was one man who was called up that was missing half an arm. He also had just recently had a knee replacement surgery. His other knee needed surgery, and he needed to have a hip replacement. The man hobbled up front to be healed. The healer declared that he was, in fact, healed. And then the man hobbled back to his seat. He'd been declared healed, but his arm was still missing, and his knees and his hips were still so worn down, he could not even walk upright. The point is this. Here was a pastor who knew the word of God, who warned others about the deception from men like this, and when he first went to one of these services, he had doubts. He questioned his own beliefs. He was taken back by what he saw. Do not underestimate the possibility of being led astray. Do not let the teachings of men shake your faith. Do not let the apostasy around us rattle your cage. Expect great deception in these last days. Expect the falling away to come. Ground yourself in God's word. Seek his wisdom, his truth, and then spend your time sharing the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We close our study together remembering the words of the Apostle Paul. In Romans 15, where Paul testified, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in and studying the Word of God with us. If you like what you've heard, tell others. Help us to spread the message of God's amazing grace. We'll see you next time, and I pray that you will continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. 
Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word 